It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Broering. As always, it's presented by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lending. We are a little over three days away as we record this podcast from Super Bowl 56. I'm neck deep in that coverage. You are on the road with the NKU Norse uh, in Milwaukee. Is that correct, Rick? That's right. I am looking out the window at some traffic on, uh, I don't know, some expressway here next to the Hilton in Milwaukee. So it's a lovely scene here. I'll bet. Certainly a lovely scene out in California where kickoff time temperature is going to be in the mid to high 80s. Certainly beautiful weather, it looks like, and uh, should be uh, should be an exciting time for everybody for sure. We got a lot to get to. We're going to talk about the Super Bowl. We got some storylines to talk about. We're going to make some gambling picks on the Super Bowl with some prop bets. We got some college basketball to talk about. And then you can, of course, go to Twitter, as always. Hit us up with hashtag AskSkinnyAnything, where I'll answer a question on any topic that's on your mind. All right, Rick, take it away. That's right. We're going to do things a little bit differently for this show, being that it is a Super Bowl episode. We're going to go ahead and hit on some topics from the game and then give you our betting picks for the game before we get into the college basketball talk. So just wanted to give you a heads up if you're uh, listening to this. I know a lot of people just like the college basketball stuff. Um, so if you're looking for that, go ahead and skip down past the betting segment. You'll still find it in, in there. We didn't forget to talk about the college basketball games this week. But first, the Cincinnati Bengals. And Los Angeles Rams will kick off Sunday at 6.30 p.m. at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California for Super Bowl 56. I can't really believe I just read that sentence. <laughs> the, the Rams are a four-and-a-half-point favorite in the game, Skinny. I've got a few topics about this to hit on, and we'll start with we've heard a ton about the Bengals' offensive line having to go up against Aaron Donald and the Rams' pass rush, which I we think have? we would really? – <laughs> I, I think we'd all agree that's probably Los Angeles' biggest advantage in this game. What is the Bengals' biggest advantage over the Rams? Honestly, that they don't know what they don't know, I think. I think there's so many young guys that don't know how big this moment truly is. Sprinkle with enough vets who've been through the process of maybe not getting to a Super Bowl, but knowing um, what it means to get to this moment. Um, I, I think a lot of it, though, is a lot of your key guys don't know what they don't know. I truly think they think this is just another game. And it's not. We all know it's not, but they don't. So I think that is a big advantage. I think the, there's a lot of pressure on this Rams team. You know, you got Sean McVay's second time being there. First time around, he admitted he tinkered too much and, and tried to do too much. And maybe he's learned a lesson, um, but tried to do too much. And, um, you know, Zach Taylor was along for that ride. And so maybe he learned that, that Sean McVay tried to do too much, that he tried to reinvent the wheel in two weeks. Um, so I think there, there's a little bit of, of that, too, that, you know, that was Sean McVay's first time. Well, this is kind of Zach Taylor's second time. Yeah, first time as a head coach, but he's been through this before. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of advantages, believe it or not, the Bengals have. And, and to me, it's it's the literally, it's the, hey, these guys just, they don't know what they don't know. Yeah, I think from a mentality standpoint, this team couldn't be in a better position. They've got this weird vibe around them of what you just laid out in the sense that they're kind of naive in a good way. And then you also have this crazy Joe Burrow confidence situation at quarterback that kind of gives you all the rest of the stuff that you need, right? The the confidence to believe you can do it without having been there and all of those things that you would normally think you would assign to a team that's never been there before, never won a playoff game or anything like that prior to this year. Burrow kind of makes up for all that by giving you a swagger and confidence in excess at the quarterback position. Yeah, and if you're looking for for the tangible reason, I think that's what you were looking for. I kind of gave you a major intangible. But yeah, the tangible to me would be, uh, number nine, um, just because 
he's been through big games. I, I don't think you can discount the fact that he led a team to a national championship. It doesn't always correlate because it hasn't correlated at this point for any other NFL quarterback, but it feels like it correlates for this guy and just the way he handles big games. I went back and read, because I, I did a story last week um, on, on a little bit on Burrow, um, and, and it's tough. It's actually, I did one, I did a big piece this week on the five traits that, that, that have made Joe Burrow a top-tier quarterback in the league, and, and one of them is his toughness, and, and he talked about um, Michael Warren, actually, the former UC running back, talked about one of the hardest hits he ever took in his, his life in football was one that Joe Burrow delivered in high school. I went back and started reading about the, you know his championship game in high school, and, and, it, and it talked about, this is incredible to me. So his team loses 56-52. They, they probably, he probably single-handedly willed them just to get to the title game. And they lost to Michael Warren's team um, in the championship game. And it said that after throwing for a state record six touchdowns and doing this and that, Joe Burrow couldn't bear to hear when they said, and now the second place team in the state, second best team in the state, you had a great year, announced his high school. It said he started to cry and walked away. He couldn't stand losing. He couldn't take it. And I think that shows you how desperately this guy wants to win and just finds ways to win. He's special in that regard. And we've seen, you know, so many people have laid out different graphics or brought it up on broadcasts or whatever, what he's done in big games throughout his career. And obviously most of the time they're just going back to that bowl game at LSU and then talking about what he's done in the NFL this year already. But I mean, he really is just special in those big moments. I have another specific position where I think the Bengals have an advantage. And it's one where I don't know how much it'll get talked about because the the Rams cornerbacks as a position group are pretty highly thought of. And a big reason for that is because they have probably the best cornerback in the game in Jalen Ramsey. But one thing that I keep looking at with this game is once you get to that second spot, you've got Darius Williams guarding T Higgins on that other side with Tyler Boyd in the slot. Um, and, and Jalen Ramsey will move around a little bit. He's not going to just stay on Jamar chase the entire game, although he's been lobbying for that publicly in interviews this week. But a lot of the time you have to imagine that Darius Williams is going to be guarding T Higgins. Darius Williams is five foot nine. T Higgins is six foot four or five and a big guy who plays very big as a receiver. Darius Williams gave up 44 yards against Brandon Ayuk in the NFC Championship game and 135 yards on nine catches against the Buccaneers the week prior. He's a guy that, you know, he was really good a couple years ago. He's kind of fallen back a little bit since then. He was a little banged up early in this year. It's It's been a rough year for him overall. He hasn't been great in the playoffs. I think the Bengals actually are really going to give this secondary some problems. Yeah, I think it's the chess match of Joe Burrow finding finding those those one-on-ones, whoever it may be, wherever it may be, and and exploiting that before, which has been talked about, the Aaron Donald Von Miller pass rush gets to him. I, you know, I, I've, I, I thought they did a really good job against Kansas City of sometimes showing five wide and then only sending three guys out and leaving the tight end in the block and leaving a running back in the block. Um, they didn't completely expose themselves in, in, you know, five man protections all the time, but it is something they like to do. And, and I, you know, it sounds silly. You're thinking, well, gosh, darn, if you're going five man protections and they send five, you're going to go one-on-one with Aaron Donald. Yeah, you are. You're going to have to go one-on-one with Aaron Donald some, but I, I think some of it is you trust Joe Burrow to make a quick right decision when they go five wide, that he's going to beat you before you beat him. And I think some of it too is. Am I going to expend all these resources to block Aaron Donald, only send a few guys out on the route, 
and still not be able to block the guy anyway. So why not just say, you know what, here we are, we're going to spread you out. Um, you're going to have to man, uh, cover us man-to-man, and we're going to get to the right guy before you can get to our guy, because we think you're going to get to our guy anyway. So I think there's a little chess match that will go on with that too. Yeah, it's kind of the whole thing we talked about earlier in the season of make them adjust to what we do. You know, don't don't cater our whole game plan around having to account for their good players. Make them account for our good players. Right, and I think right. Zach Taylor has gotten much better at that. We've seen that multiple times in the play. I mean, go back to the game where you gave up nine sacks. I think he really played that well. It's like, yeah, we're going to get sacked a lot, but you're still going to have to guard our guys, and we're going to eventually get the best of you. And I, I mean, another part of this Ram secondary thing is they play a lot of zone coverage. And I'm sure you saw the uh, pro football stat this week that came out that Joe Burrow is the best in the NFL this year passing against zone coverages. So uh, as much as everyone keeps talking about, he's not going to have any time. He's going to have pressure on him all day. And Jalen Ramsey is so good as the top cornerback. I really think that's not looking at the entire picture of this Bengals offense. They have more than just Jamar chase in terms of their weapons for Joe Burrow to pass to. And Burrow is so good that he can turn any of those guys into a star for a single game. Yeah. And he's proven that all across the whole year of, you want to take this guy away? I'll go to this guy. You want to take that guy away? I'll go back to this guy. You want to leave our best guys one-on-one? Well, I'm going to exploit that and, and, and make you pay. And and I, I think he's talked about, too, you know, everybody's asked him the questions of why are you so good in big games, and some of it is the joke cool aspect and, you know, kind of rising the occasion. He's talked about, though, a lot of it for him is th- that he just keeps gaining mental reps and, and physical reps as the year goes along, and he just gets more and more, more comfortable with what he sees what he feels his strengths are, what he feels the, the the way he can exploit a defense. And I think there's some truth to that too, that, you know, that, that senior year at LSU, he just got better and better and better. And as his year's gone along, he's gotten better and better and better. And I think it is, I think for him, it's the more reps he gets, just the better he gets overall. I think it's proven out. All right, Skinny, who are the three most important Bengals players in this game? Um, I'm going to go... Burrow for sure. I mean, that's an easy yeah. one, right? I, I we know both that's, start that's with the same number out, one him for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's yeah because he's going to have to be responsible for um, getting the ball out of his hands quickly, finding the matchups that he likes, um, all those things. And so, I think he is clearly the the, the number one most important guy. I'm going to go. Believe it or not, Joe Mixon number two. I I, I think that if you want to also beat the pass rush, and 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 if they want to play some too high zone you're going to have to run the ball and you're going to have to get him touches in the screen game. And I think he, he's going to be, and we'll get to the betting segment. He's one of my dark horse guys, not even that much of a dark horse, but he's at least a decent odd guy for, for MVP of this game. I I think Joe Mixon is a really read, really vital guy. The other one I'm going to go with, I'll go with DJ reader because if he can, he's not going to do this single handedly, but if he can be the disruptor in the run game and, and, and really help to get the Rams into second and nines, and second and eights, and potentially third and longs, and disrupt Sony Michelle, disrupt Cam Akers, um, slow that running game down because they've really turned to that a lot. I think Matthew Stafford, the more he puts it up, the better chances are he's going to do something wrong with the football. And I like Matthew Great. Stafford. I think he's a good quarterback. The numbers don't lie. He finally got to a team that that had all the parts to get to a Super Bowl, and he deserves credit for being the quarterback that's gotten them there. But I also Matthew Stafford will throw one to you every once in a while. And and I think if you can get him a little bit into throwing it more than they would like him to throw it, um, I, I think that starts with DJ Reader up front disrupting that run game. Even in the playoffs, Skinny, it feels like Stafford has done it once a game where he's just thrown that jump ball up into 
double, triple coverage, or maybe not even having a receiver there, just kind of lofted one up and given defensive secondaries a chance to to pick him off. So I couldn't agree more with you that on that, that I really like the DJ reader call, because if you force them to rely on Stafford to make plays, that's not to say he can't, he definitely can. They have a dynamic offense, all of those things, but he but, can when he does it off play action. I mean, he's so, he's got such a great arm that if you're going to you know allow him to, to go play action and you have to bite on the run because it's a second and two, he's going to get you. Exactly. That's the thing. You have to take him out of rhythm. You have to put pressure on him to make those plays. He can't be comfortable keeping you off balance, keeping you on your heels to where it's handoff, it's play action. Then he's taking a shot. I I agree with you. You take away their run game and you put more pressure on them. Your chances of winning this game go up immensely. Uh, For me, I went with Burrow, obviously, number one. It's a no doubter. There's no chance the Bengals are going to win this game if Joe Burrow doesn't play well. Um, the number two guy I went with, and and maybe Reader was the better choice from the defensive side of things, but I went with Trey Hendrickson because we, we talked about so much about the the Bengals and the pressure that they're going to have on them when they're on offense. The Rams' offensive line is really good, and if Trey Hendrickson isn't able to get any pressure up front, I'm not sure that the Bengals are going to get to Stafford at all. So it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, the importance of stopping the run to put some pressure on Stafford. I think it's the same way. you got to be able to put a little bit of pressure on him with your pass rush. And the Bengals aren't going to be blitzing a lot of guys in this game. They haven't done that a a ton in the postseason in general. And uh, against Stafford, he's so good against the blitz that you have to imagine they're going to be pretty conservative in that regard. So it's really going to have to come from those guys up front and – you have to imagine a lot of that's going to fall on the shoulders of Hendrickson. So I would have him as my number two. And then finally, I'm going back to what I said in the the first answer and T Higgins. I really think that's a huge matchup advantage, having a giant receiver like that going against a tiny defensive back who's been struggling in the postseason. I really think Higgins could have an MVP type performance in this game as well. Yeah. And we'll get to that here in a second. Yep. All right, Skinny, give me an X factor, the name of someone who might surprise everyone in the Super Bowl and, and lead to a Bengals win. That's a good one. Um, boy, I don't, I don't know if I consider him an X factor, but I think he's got to be involved too. Again, it would, would be a Samaj P. Ryan. That when he spells Joe Burrow, can he make another big play or two? Um, Joe Mixon. Because, I, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I guess I could go Uzama because I think he's going to play. He's obviously going to try to play, and um, we've seen him come up with some really big plays. I mean, he, he had a couple of big first two postseason games. He was huge in the past game. I guess I'll go Uzama for that reason. Just I, I think he's going to play, um, and and so for that reason, I'll, I'll go him. I'll go CJ Uzama. I've talked myself into it. So Uzama would have been my number two, and it, I, I agree with everything you said, plus the Rams linebackers are their weak spot on defense, particularly in coverage. They've been pretty bad. They've been picked on in the postseason. So I like that call. Hopefully Uzama's healthy enough to, to give the Bengals that type of spark on the offensive side. He would have been my second guy. The reason I didn't go with him is because of the injury and you just don't know how limited he's going to be. But the guy I'm going with, I think there's a really high potential for him to end up as either the hero of this game or the scapegoat if things go south and that's Eli Apple he's going to have a really tough assignment you imagine he's going to be matched up with Odell Beckham a fair amount in this game and I mean let's face it Odell Beckham's gone from a guy who was uh, completely overrated and a team killer to now a guy who's 
probably not valued enough. He's still a, a top tier talent when he's on top of his game and playing focused. And you have to imagine that in the Super Bowl, he's going to be fairly locked in. He's been a nice weapon for them in the postseason. So I'm going to say Eli Apple on that other side from Cheeto is going to have a big impact on this game. That's a good call. Um, I think I saw a thing this week and I didn't look it up myself. So I'm going to credit this to the Twitter verse uh, if they're right. I didn't realize Eli Apple has a better man-to-man coverage grade from PFF than Jalen Ramsey this year. <laughs> That's hard to believe, isn't it? It is. I mean, obviously, a little bit different circumstances, and those well, numbers you mentioned a lot of it is goofy, they... but it's still it's still something. I mean, they're yeah, all well, being measured the same way. Well, and some of it is, uh, you know, Jalen Ramsey's drawing the top guy a lot of times, right. and Eli Apple is not. But still, it is what it is. Yeah, that's an interesting stat. Also, I, I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it, that this is only the second time ever that two number one overall quarterbacks have met in the Super Bowl? Yeah, it is. I I, I found that interesting, too. Um, but I, I did write a column uh, before the Bengals took Joe Burrow, just kind of it was a buyer beware that number one overall quarterbacks usually don't pan out the way you would like them to pan out. And I think I actually counted Matthew Stafford in that mix at the time. Yeah. He had not been to a Super Bowl, right, with Detroit. Right. Um, you know, uh, but, but yeah, here it is two, two number ones. It took one guy two years to do it. it took another guy, you know, a decade to, to, to do it. So it, it does show you, even though Joe Burrow's made it look fairly easy, it's, it's not, it's not the, the, the complete be all end all. And if you take a quarterback number one overall, then he's going to lead you to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Stafford was the number one pick in 2009 by the lions. And the only other time two quarterbacks drafted number one met in the Super Bowl was in 2016 when it was Peyton Manning and the Broncos against Cam Newton and the Panthers in in Super Bowl 50. So I, I, it's hard to believe that's a real stat, but it's one that definitely caught my attention. One more question here on the Super Bowl topic, Skinny. What does a Bengals Super Bowl win look like in the city of Cincinnati? I I know this, at least we don't burn couches. That's a good thing. I don't think we'll burn cars. I, I can imagine though that that party, if, if, if you have to go to work, God love you. If you have to go to work on Monday morning, you're going to still people see, see people straggling in the streets, probably still partying at seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning on Monday. Without question. The one thing that Cincinnati does really well, and I would even include this lead up to the game and this entire postseason is we do events really well. Any reason to party and turn it into a big social event. This city is really good. I mean, you know, you, you can talk about, Oh yeah, they're a bit, it's a big sports town and everything like that. But what happens the day after opening day, there's like 5,000 people at the next Reds game, right? That's right. But the day of opening day, there's hundreds of thousand people's packed in the street, partying it up like it's the uh, biggest thing ever, and they're all huge Reds fans. So it's been the same way in the Bengals postseason. I know there are legitimately a lot of big Bengals fans, but and I don't think this is uh, a knock on the city or anything, calling them fair weather fans. I I think we legitimately just have a, a ton of people that love to be bought in on whatever events happening, whether it's blank in Cincinnati and everybody has to make it a point to go down there and see it, or it's the Bengals in the playoff. And we have to buy every piece of merchandise out of every store in the city just because it's one thing that Cincinnati does really well. They rally around events like this. I think if the Bengals somehow do win the Super Bowl, it's going to be an incredible week of celebrating. Yeah. And I I don't, I'm not a big, I I don't buy, and and I know you didn't mean it this way, but I don't buy into that whole fair weather fan stuff either. You know what? As a team, you earn your fans' respect and and, and adoration. And for, for the last handful of years, this franchise did not deserve that. For a chunk of the 90s, this franchise did not deserve that. 
when they got relevant again, people were, and listen, that you earn that adoration. You earn that when you become relevant. You have to make people care. And you make people care by doing things like this. And this city has proven time and time and time and time again that they do care when you make them care, whether it's the Reds or, hell, even the Cyclones going to the Kelly Cup. I went to some of those games. That place was sold out. It's a minor league hockey team. But but make them care. You see football for years. Nobody cared because they weren't relevant. When they were relevant, people cared. I mean, it's a matter of make them care, and they will care. And I think I'm good with that. Yeah, and someone said it to me when I was here in Milwaukee, actually, last night for the NKU game. Uh, one of the guys we were talking to before the game said something like, well, Cincinnati just really loves a winner, don't they? And I said, yeah, to some extent, it's that. It's definitely winning, but in a way, it's like, the Bengals fans would have been happy and they were going nuts a, a couple weeks ago when the Bengals just won one playoff game. So right. they just need a reason, like you said, a reason to care at all. It's not you have to be winning Super Bowls or you have to be in the Super Bowl for the, the fan base to get engaged. This fan base felt like it was on cloud nine and couldn't wait till next year after winning just one playoff game. Everyone was elated and, and super excited about what was in store for the future of this franchise. So the fact that they're in this spot is still incredible it feels surreal and i really can't imagine what a, a super bowl celebration would look like in the city although i think they will do a fantastic job i mean just looking at the the pep rally to send the Bengals off how well done was that right. and to be quite honest when they started talking that was, about that was it, i laughed at it i thought it was going to be kind of silly and i hokey. rolled my eyes I, yeah i rolled my eyes at it i was the same way as you were oh come on i, I thought it helped that the players were as bought in as the players were though yep. they really bought into that too yeah, they did a great job, and the city showed up. I mean, look, they, they sold 30000 and only because they capped it. If they would have sold the entire stadium out, people would have shown up for that and packed the entire stadium, and it was 28 degrees. So, right. uh, you know, pe people definitely care, and this is it's a pretty cool moment. It's something that I've never gotten to see in my lifetime, and there's only been a, a few moments that were even close to this where, like, the Reds make the playoffs for one series and everybody packs the bars or whatever for a day or two. It's I've always thought that was pretty cool. And to see it like this for this extended of a period and know that uh, it, it could be taken up a few notches here uh, if if they somehow find a way to win the Super Bowl is just well, incredible. And, and I'll even go back to the UC football thing. I mean, I'm a Kentucky grad, but, you know, I, I they made me sit up and take notice. Right. And they made I think a lot of people who, who were maybe casual college football fans go, wait a minute, that says Cincinnati on it. Yes. Yeah, I'm behind you guys. I'm I, I, again, be relevant. Um, and people will care about you. It's a pretty simple concept. In some ways, do you almost feel bad for Cincinnati's football program right now? I mean, it feels like two years ago <laughs> that they played for the national championship, and it was the biggest sports story in the city in decades. Yeah, and, and it's 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 literally, what, six weeks ago? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not long ago at all, but it feels like it's a total afterthought at this point with what the Bengals are, and it's not. I mean, as soon as you know we get back into UC football, everyone will be fired up about it again. I'm not trying taking shots or anything like that, but it, I mean, it is just weird how that was such a giant moment for the sports in the city, and it's just almost been erased from our memory in the matter of six weeks. Yeah, can you imagine too um, if the Reds were in spring training right now, what, what what little coverage they'd be getting at the moment? Oh, oh my God, I did. I, I, well, they I wouldn't completely they even forgot. Would, I, yeah, I haven't been paying attention to the Major League Baseball lockout or any of that type of stuff at all. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. It's almost like okay, we'll, we'll roll through this. We'll either bask in the in the in the glory of the win or dissect the loss and what and and, and talk about 
great things to come in the future for the next week or two. And then all of a sudden you're going to look up and I've talked about this. We're going to go, Oh, it's college basketball tournament time. Yay. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, skinny. It's, it's that time. I will set this up because uh, you have pulled away to where I'm, I'm not going to be able to catch you here. You have won our betting pick them for the year. You went three and one two weeks ago in the uh, final week of the AFC championship and NFC championship games. You, you actually had the perfect score in the Rams 49ers game 20 to 17 was the final you had it dead on the nose uh you went three and one so you finish at 121 103 and four heading into the Super Bowl I'm 117 107 and four after going one and three two weeks ago and so it brings us to this where the Rams are a four and a half point favorite the total is 48 and a half skinny what do you got on the Super Bowl prediction yeah I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna go Two, two, I'm going to make two wagers here for you, if you will. I, 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 and I'm, I'm going to do this for real. I, I like the four and a half. I think the hook is just that that hook makes buy, makes me buy in for a big time reason. Um, I'm going to go Bengals outright 24-21 <laughs> because I'm going to make two wagers. I'm going to take the Bengals plus the four and a half, and I'm going to take the total up to 51 and a half when I go make a two-team parlay. And then I'm going to make another one where I'm going to take the Bengals Minus two and a half under 51 and a half for a parlay, which will get me a little more value to it. So uh, I'll go Bengals 24 21, the final score. And why not Evan McPherson from 48 at the gun? Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're dead on here. I have Bengals 23, Rams 21. So we're both on Bengals and the under, Bengals with the outright win. I'm calling two touchdowns, three Evan McPherson field goals, and a field goal at the gun while they're <laughs> down 21 20 to win it. After they never had the lead all game, right? Kind of exactly. like, like the, the last, yeah, just the, the way it's been. That just feels like how they're going to play this thing out. And you know, I mean, th- this game could definitely go either way. I actually think we're going to be in for a really good Super Bowl. I, do I too. think it should be a good matchup, but it, it just feels like if the Bengals are going to win this thing, it's hard to imagine it coming down to anything other than a late drive and an Evan McPherson field goal at this point. Yeah. Agreed. Right. It's, it's, it's dead feels like. All right, Skinny, in terms of some of the other prop bets, I've got three here that I like. Uh, can, can you come up with three prop bets to give the people as well if I can go first? Well, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I, I, yeah, I, I've got I've got $100 worth of MVP money I'm going to spread around, and I've got a prop bet that I like. So I'm going to go kind of in that direction if, if I can. I'll let you do the three like prop it. bets. I so, like it. So the, the one prop bet I like, and I, and I saw the odds the other day. I don't have it completely in front. I've got the odds for the MVP guys. But it was a it was a pretty good one. It, it 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 was double digit odds, actually pretty decent odds. Joe Mixon, two touchdowns or more. I think I'm going to put some money on that. It just feels like a Joe Mixon two touchdown game to me. Okay. What else? And the odds have? were pretty good on that. All right. So here's my MVP. So if I got a hundred dollars to spread around in MVP money, here's how I'm going to do it, Rick. I'm going to put sixty of it on Burrow. At He's 2.25 to one. So that would get me back about $140. So I'm guaranteed a profit if, if he, I mean, you got to put it on the quarterback, but then I also got to have a couple of long shots in there, right? So now I've got uh, 40 more dollars to play with. I'm going to put 20 to win 660 on Joe Mixon, who's 33 to one. I'm going to put 10 to win 400 on Evan McPherson, just because it's possible, right? The way he's kicked, he's extremely possible to win the thing. And then I'm going to put 10 on your guy to win 500. T Higgins. So 60 on Burrow, 20 on Mixon, 10 on T Higgins, 
intent on Evan McPherson. The minimum I could win out of that, if I can get one of those four guys to be the MVP, would be a profit of 140. But I got a chance to profit 500 from Mixon. I got a chance to profit 300 from McPherson and a chance to profit 400 from T. Higgins. Uh, how much did you put on McPherson? Because I think those odds are way higher than that, actually. Well, I, I, the ones I've got right here, he's 40 to 1. Oh, really? I yeah. got him at 150 to 1. Did you really? Yeah, so so I, I did three MVP picks already be, uh, before I left town. And I had T. Okay. Higgins, and uh, he was at a 4.5 to 1. I, I got him at 10 bucks to win 460. Um, okay, so I, this is I got him at fifty to one on this. So yeah, okay, keep, keep going. I got McPherson at one hundred and fifty to one. I put fifteen bucks on him to win two thousand two hundred and sixty-five dollars. Yeah, wow, I love well, that's a that's a great value play, bro. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if he kicks three field goals in this game, like I just predicted, which you know who knows if that happens, but if somehow he does, well, I he's, think he's got. He's only kicked. He's only kicked kick. four in each of the first three. He's only Rick. He's only kicked four in each of the first three games, so it's not like he hasn't kicked a bunch. Well, I know, and, and and I mean the Bengals are so reliant upon him, you know that they, it, they don't get too aggressive when they get across the fifty because they know, hey, we get a couple more yards here, we'll just kick the fifty-six yarder with right. McPherson. So that's always a weapon they have right. in their back pocket. I think they're always considering that with their play calling. Um, and then the other guy I got that is another extreme long shot, but I just thought, you know, there is a, a world here where the Bengals defense comes up with a couple I, I, turnovers. To I win almost this went game. there. And the one guy that I kind of liked from a, a, he's as long of a shot as anybody is Logan Wilson. I threw $5 on Logan Wilson. I'm like, what happens if he comes up with eight to 10 tackles and an interception or something like that? And, and maybe it's an interception return for a touchdown. It's very low chances that Logan Wilson or any Bengals defender is going to win MVP. But I thought at those odds, it's worth a shot. I thought you were going Trey Hendrickson. Cause I don't know what you, what you might've gotten him at, but he's 80 to one on the thing I'm looking at. Yeah, I mean, good, good odds on Trey Hendrickson, too. The problem for Trey Hendrickson is I just didn't think he would have the chance to get the turnover more than likely. I mean, it'd probably have to be like right. a strip sack, strip sack, fumble recovery, and and run it back. So yeah. um, I was taking a guy that had a chance to get interception, preferably. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of on the same page there with some of those MVP picks for certain. Um, there are a couple other props that I really liked here, though, Skinny. All right. And it goes back to the Evan McPherson situation. There's a couple different Fire ways away. you – yeah, there's a couple different ways you could do this, but the one I like the best, I think, is Bengals total field goal yardage over 60 and a half yards. That's minus oh my, 115. That's great. I mean, that, dude, that's 230 yarders. Exactly. I mean, it's just basically saying, do you think they'll kick two field goals at least? Right. Which I do. I do too. So um, I, I thought that was great value. There's also a prop, and this is better odds at plus 140, Evan McPherson to have a 50 plus yard field goal. Ooh, yeah. At plus 140. I bet that as well. Just put a unit on that, but I feel really good about that at those odds. So any Evan McPherson props, I think, are are a really good option here. Um, another one that I had, Skinny, that I really like, Rams total sacks over three and a half at plus 105. That's probably a good call because we, we've seen it that, that he's going to get sacked probably and he's going to overcome the sacks. So yeah, that, that's a pretty good one too. And then finally, the last one that I had was T. Higgins over five and a half receptions at plus 100. Yeah, that's a hard one for me. I'm kind of with you, though, on the fact of, of I can't imagine they don't take try to take Jamar Chase away as much as possible. Um, and they're good enough to actually do that. Jalen Ramsey is one of the few guys that could make you decide right. not to throw at Jamar Chase. 
Yeah, and even if even if not, I mean, Tiggins is still going to get his targets, right? I mean, I, I, that's I, I like that one too. I, I think you've done a good job kind of finding these, to be honest with you. I was really happy with those three prop bets. I'm on several more, so you know, if you want any of those picks, which I don't know why you would after listening to me make picks all football season, but if you do, feel free to hit me up on Twitter. I'll share whatever what else I'm in on, but those are the three that I, I really liked, so... Uh, skinny, any other thoughts, whether it be betting related, Bengals related, Rams related, what do you have here on the Super Bowl before we move on to college basketball? Honestly, I, I think we covered just about every base I could want to cover, to be quite frank. Um, I'm just kind of at the stage of let's get the game here and get it on with, uh, there's, there's the two weeks has just been too much. I'm not going to lie to you. It's been too much. It is. Yep. I couldn't agree more. All right, let's get into some college basketball talk. We will start with my NKU Norse, because the Norse beat Oakland on Friday night. They lost to Detroit on Saturday, playing a back-to-back due to the snowstorm. And then they won by 36 points at Milwaukee on Wednesday night. With the win over Oakland, NKU has now defeated all three of the teams at the top of the Horizon League standings within the last few weeks. Skinny, what do you make of NKU's 4-1 and homestand, followed by a 36-point win at Milwaukee, a team that, I'll remind you, beat them at BB&T Arena a few weeks ago? I think that was a good bounce back. I know I had a couple of people go, well, how in the world did they lose on Saturday? I said, well, it was not supposed to be back-to-back games. It was supposed to be a game Thursday, then a day off to prepare and rest, and then a game on, on Saturday. Plus, it was a big win over Oakland, so you had to process having a huge win over the team that was in first place in the league and in then play less than 24 hours. I'm not looking to make an excuse, Rick. I know you're not either. Yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not looking to make an excuse for them, um, but that, that kind of stuff can happen when you're playing a circumstance like that. Now, the one thing I would tell you is, uh, that lesson needs to be learned by the time you get to Horizon League tournament time because guess what may have to happen? You may have to get a big win followed by playing a team you're better than very quickly and get the job done. Well, yeah, and and look, I mean, you know, Detroit Mercy is not a, a slouch right now. They're 7-4 and four in the conference. They're right behind NKU in the, the conference standings, and they've got one of the best players in the entire league, and Antoine Davis, he's leading the entire country in scoring. And what happened was they're in a close game late, and Antoine Davis became the best player on the court. NKU did a great job on him for about 37 minutes. And then the final three or four minutes, he went nuts and made some crazy shots to to win the game. So, yeah, sometimes you got to tip your cap a little bit. And Detroit Mercy is is not down at all this year. They're having a good season by their standards. So, um you know, I didn't, I didn't think too much yeah, t- of that loss at all. And the fact that they bounced back so strong on Wednesday, I thought was a really good sign because Milwaukee is a team with their length and size and athleticism. And by the way, their projected lottery pick, Pat Baldwin Jr. was back in action for this game. I was really impressed by the way NKU handled Milwaukee. Yeah, and back to Detroit for a second. Actually, technically, they're, they're what, fourth in the league at the moment. NKU's just on the outside of, of fifth to get that 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 by circumstance. So yeah, no, back to your point about Detroit, they're, they're not an awful team. I, I, I just go back to, it's just unfortunate you had to play them on back-to-back nights after having such a big win. That's just a tough place to be. I don't care who you are, what the circumstance is, et cetera. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and just looking at the horizon league standings real quick, because it is going off of win percentage skinny. So NKU is actually still in that fourth spot. They've got a 643 winning okay. percentage right now. Detroit is 636 right behind them at seven and four NKU at nine and five. So it's really jumbled up. And all NKU's of a sudden. played two more. Yeah. NKU's played two more league games than them. Actually three now. Yeah. NKU's at 14 three and they're now, at right. 11. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and, and the way the, the standings have all of a sudden happened, cause Oakland just dropped another game last night at Youngstown state. So they are now nine and four after being 
the number one team in the conference when NKU faced them last week uh, with just one loss. They now have four losses after losing three straight games. They're nine and four, just a half game ahead of NKU at nine and five. Wright State is 12 and four. They've played a bunch more games, but are right there in terms of losses with just one less loss than NKU. And then Cleveland State is at the top at 12 and two, sitting in a, a really good position now. So yeah, I mean, NKU's right there in that fourth spot right now, which top four seeds in the conference tournament get a first round bye, and then we'll play a second round home game uh, before heading to the semifinals in Indianapolis. So very key that NKU sticks in that top four seed line, and they might even have the chance to move up with Oakland and Wright State coming back down to the pack a little bit more. Yep. All right. Kentucky has won five straight after picking up a win at Alabama on Saturday and at South Carolina on Tuesday. Bracket Matrix now has Kentucky as the third number two seed Skinny, with seven games left, do you think Kentucky can earn a one seed in the NCAA tournament? I do, because they still got these following teams left to play. Um, they've still got to play at Tennessee, which would be a big win. They got Alabama coming to Rupp, and Alabama has obviously had some goofy losses, but they've also got some really good wins. They've still got LSU coming to Rupp. They still got to go to Arkansas, and they play Florida twice. They got a chance to still get some really big wins to up that resume. I, I think they. I think unless they have have some kind of collapse, uh, um, they are firmly in the two line, and I think they got a great shot to move up to the one seed line. I do. Well, yeah, and I mean, think I can't get the what they did to Tennessee the last time they played out of my mind. I mean, I don't expect that to repeat itself, but you have to imagine them going to Tennessee the way that matchup worked out last time. They've got a great chance to get a quad one road win right there to add to the Alabama quad one road win that they just picked up. And uh, LSU has really been scuffling as of late, one of the better teams in the conference, but they've lost six of their last eight. So they got a nice they got a nice win at AM on uh, on Tuesday night, though. Yeah, that, that was a good showing. But again, I mean, it's even the better teams in the conference right now. When you look at where Kentucky's at, you're feeling pretty good about their chances in those games. So that game at Tennessee, the, the home game against Alabama, the home game against LSU, that's a really tough stretch right there. But, you know, two or three weeks ago, it looked like a much tougher stretch for the Wildcats. And now you're looking at it and think, man, they could potentially pick up three quad one wins in a row right there. And all of a sudden, if they do that, they're right in position for a one seed in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, that's the that's the funny part of how you look at it, right? Of of initially you're looking at boy, that's a daunting schedule. Now you're looking at it going, yeah, it's a daunting schedule, but it's a chance to pick up all these quad one wins, and you feel good that they have that chance. I mean, the last three Saturdays proved that. Going to Auburn, having them down for a chunk of the game, and and listen, Auburn still might have won the game even if Ty Ty Washington hadn't gotten hurt. But I sure would have loved to have seen how that game played out if he stayed in. And then going to Kansas, and then going to Alabama, those three straight Saturdays. I think showed how good this team is. The big thing too, to go with that is one, you get the road wins away from Rupp arena, the Kansas win, the Alabama win on the road. Those are massive wins that this team needed to, to pull off, to prove to people like we can play away from Rupp and, and still look like the same team, but almost as important to that to me, skinny is the consistency that they showed against Vanderbilt in South Carolina to not all of a sudden look like a totally different team. That's playing down to the level of competition. There were some moments there right. where they went through a lapse or two, but for the most part, they were in control of both of those games and they, they looked solid. They came out with comfortable wins uh, to string five in a row together like this. And like you said, they, they really could have won that Auburn game had they not dealt with some injuries in that they got this thing rolling right now. 
Yeah, and, and to your point of, of, you know, coming off those big wins to beat a Vandy and to beat a South Carolina to, to then after the Auburn loss to, to, I mean, they had to go to overtime, but to beat Mississippi State. I think you see that, how just how tough conference play is with what's happened to Auburn the last weekend. I mean, they go to Georgia and, and win by the skin of their teeth and then end up losing out of Arkansas. And it just shows you that in conference play, there's just no matter how good you are, you got to survive some of the bumps in the road. And I think this team is, is has shown that it can go beat the best and then survive the bumps that are ahead. And and that that tells me a lot about this team. Yeah, you mentioned that Arkansas loss for Auburn. That puts them just one game ahead of Kentucky at this point. Auburn at ten and one in SEC play. Kentucky is at nine and two with Arkansas and Tennessee right behind them at eight and three. So uh, Kentucky with a chance to take the top seed in the SEC tournament as well. In fact, a pretty good chance, I think, here down the stretch. Also, Skinny, we have Xavier, who has dropped two in a row since the last time we talked. The Musketeers dropped a home game to DePaul on Saturday, followed by a 73-71 loss at Seton Hall on Wednesday. Is it time to hit the panic button on Victory Parkway? It's time to move on from Travis Steele. Go ahead with your rant. <laughs> I don't have a rant. I, I want got, to hear what I, you have to follow up with there. I, no, I, I, I've got I've got your rant saved. By the way, I, I, I have to go one? listen the to the rant. rant? I've, heard, I've heard. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think it is time to hit the panic button because it just feels like it's same old, same old. As the year goes along, this team. This team just doesn't seem to be able to put enough together. I mean, you just can't lose at home to DePaul. I can, I can survive. The loss to Seton Hall in a vacuum is okay. It's, I, I get that part. I'm, I'm, I can live with that part. I can't, I can't live with the loss to DePaul. And those are the kind of games I can't live with. Now, I will say this: while the schedule's never easy in the Big East, they do have four more home games that they, three that they, sh- well, two they should win. Two are probably toss-ups, but they are at home. And you still have to go to St. John's, which shouldn't be impossible. I mean, I, I look at it and go, all right, they've got two, four, six, seven games left. I think they can go four and three. That puts them at 20 and twenty and 10. That probably gets you on the eight seed line, right? Yeah. I guess here's my question. Is four and three plausible, or is the potential for a complete collapse of losing at home to UConn this, this coming Friday and then following up with losing at home to St. John's and then still having to go to UConn and Providence and St. John's and having Seton all come to your I mean, I think it is time to hit the panic button just because they you better start taking care of business or you're going to play your way to a terrible seed line or hell if you completely collapse out of the tournament entirely. I don't see that taking place. Like I said, I think they go, I'll give them four and three the rest of the way. And if they do that, that's an eight seed line. I mean, it sucks because I think this team probably had a chance to be on the six seed line for a chunk of this season. It's played its way off of that, but okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly the way I'm looking at it too right now. In these final eight games, I said, I think they need to go four and four down the stretch or really when it was nine games left, I thought they still just needed that amount of wins, basically four more wins following the Butler one, but then you lose a home game to DePaul. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, that four is a lot tougher to come by all of a sudden because you go to Seton hall, which was an expected loss. And it turned out to be a two point loss. They played well in the second half, but had another terrible start, which that, I mean, that's the reason that you hit the panic button right now. If you're a Xavier fan, isn't because of, this team and this specific loss or, you know, any one game it's because of what's happening, the way things are trending this season combined with what's happened each of the last two years as well, specifically last year, because it's a lot of the same guys. And obviously it's the, it's the same coaching staff. 
And I think that's the, you're seeing another pattern develop here of aside from the Butler game, they haven't played a good first half since, well, the last time they played Butler, the two games against Butler, really, you're going back to the beginning of January, January 7th, they played at Butler and they played a good first half there. And then ever since then, you're talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine games since then, they've had one decent first half, and that was also against Butler at home. Other than that, the other eight games, every first half has been brutal or pretty bad. All right, so what What, what if your Travis Steele then should that signify to you, and what buttons should he maybe and can he push? I, that's a great question. I really don't know. I mean, I, I guess you make change for the sake of making change in terms of your starting right. lineup. I don't think there's an obvious answer to your problems or someone who clearly makes you better by inserting them into the starting lineup. But uh, you know, one thing, especially after the way the Seton Hall game ended where Zach Freeman fouled out with over 13 minutes to play and Cesar Edwards had to come in and play the final 10 minutes. I think whether the answer is Cesar Edwards or just going to a smaller lineup, because a lot of matchups probably aren't going to dictate that you can play Cesar Edwards and, and Jack Nungy together at the same time, very often you you probably should take Zach Freeman out of the starting line if, if I had to guess. I mean, that would probably be my first move to try to make a change just because Zach has struggled so much. He's been so inconsistent, and he doesn't seem to quite be doing the things you need him to do get, to get himself out of that spot. And what I mean is he's not playing tough on the, the glass and getting you rebounds. He's not being smart and not losing his cool and stepping over the top of a Seton Hall player and picking up a technical to where he fouls out of the game with 13 minutes left and also kills your momentum when you're making a comeback. It's things like that where it's like, how much is this guy helping you? And is he even trying to help himself get out of this rut that he's been in since he came back? He's not playing smart basketball. He's not playing with a ton of energy. I think I would take my chances on putting him on the bench or changing the way his minutes or his rotation works just to put him on notice, if nothing else. But I mean, I, I don't yeah. think there's an easy answer that makes you better in terms of changing your starting lineup. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you in, in that regard. And, and I'm going to try to give a little yin and yang here. Um, I, I think as a coach, when you have a player who, you know, you, you believe in coming into a season and you're counting on for, for at least doing good things on the offensive end. I think some of it is you're, you're really hoping to continue to give him a confidence boost and that he's finally going to snap out of it. And I'm going to continue to try to tell him, I believe in him and show him, I believe in him. But I think you're now at the stage of I've given you enough rope, dude. I I've got to do what's best for the team. And you know, maybe even have the sit down conversation of it, of you're just not giving me what we need. And I don't know why that is. If you're not bought in, if you're just having one of those years, if the injury still is lingering and affecting you, but man, I got to make a change. Um, and, and I, I tried to stick by you. Um, and I, I think that's, that is where you're at. I, he doesn't give, he gives you nothing on the defensive end. It's one thing if he gives you at least something on the offensive end, but Ricky's averaging less than 10 points. He's averaging what barely five rebounds. That's unacceptable. Well, and, and even worse is he's taking you out of the flow offensive. I mean, in the first half against DePaul, he goes one for 10 or one for nine. I mean, it, like you, you can't have a guy who's, who's not finishing, not making shots, but is also taking a lot of shots and being a focal point of your offense. So, I mean, that's where it's really hurting Xavier. And, you know, I mean, the thing I keep coming back to is if you just play without Zach Fremantle, as much as people want to say, oh, there's stretches where they look better, ultimately your upside 
is still much lower than we thought coming into the season because the reason people thought Xavier was going to be good this year coming into the year was because they had two preseason first-team all-biggie selections in Paul Scruggs and Zach Fremantle. Yep. Neither one of them have played to that level, and it's why they're in the position they're in right now and fighting to stay in the NCAA tournament conversation and on the right side of the bubble. But I don't think the answer is to just play without those two guys or completely bench them. Now, it doesn't mean you can't take him out of the starting lineup and change his minutes and things like that and not play him as much. But, you know, some people I think want the answer to be just forget about him and bench him. And I keep coming back to, well, that doesn't really make you much better either because now you're kind of starting over and you don't have enough talent if Zach and Paul are not the guys that everyone thought they were coming into the year. Yeah, but I'll go back to, you know, the whole, sometimes it is the change for change sake is what you have to do, right or wrong. That's what you got to do. Well, and at this point, what else do you have to lose if you're Travis Steele? That's right. That's right. And, and you know, again, going back to Freeman, yeah, I'm not here to tell you you discard him, but if he's just not going to give you first team all Big East uh, play, then I don't need to give him more minutes. And, I again, I understand why why – Travis is probably stuck with him as much as he's stuck with him. And you're trying to think at some point he's going to get out of the slump. This reminds me of, of Keith Bogan's, I think his sophomore or junior year at Kentucky, where he went from being a really good offensive player to he could not make a shot. Just couldn't throw one in the ocean. Tubby Smith stood by him, stood by him, stood by him. It never worked that whole season. The next year with kind of a fresh start, he became the best player in the SEC. And, you know, sometimes it's just a guy, for whatever reason, that year doesn't have it. I don't know why that is. It's sometimes inexplicable. Maybe there are reasons for Zach Fremantle, but right now he doesn't have it, so I got to go to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, look, he missed five months of the lead-up to the season and the start of the season, so I can understand why he struggled coming back. That's not a huge surprise to me, but at this point, it's clearly lingering, and for whatever reason, it's just not coming back the way you thought it might. Even though he showed a flash or two, it's like, okay, great, you played well against Butler, who we all knew is a good matchup for the Xavier team. The problem is they can already beat Butler with or without Zach Fremantle. They need to be good in these other games. And he not only hasn't been good, he's been kind of holding them back to be quite honest. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think you have to keep giving him chances and you have to keep trying to get him back on track, but there may need to be some changes made here. And like I said, I mean, if, if you're Travis just change for the sake of change is probably what you have to do at this point. And I mean, I think the reason he hasn't done it sooner is because no one's really forced his hand. Like, Juan Odom has had some great moments, but he's been very inconsistent. That's why he hasn't taken over the full-time point guard responsibilities from Paul Scruggs, despite Paul continuing to make bad decisions and turn the ball over too often. And same thing in the post with Zach Fremantle. It's like, yeah, you can sit Zach Fremantle down, but Deontay Miles has not been able to stop anybody, and he doesn't give you much of anything offensively. And Jerome Hunter has been even worse than Zach Fremantle in terms of making mistakes and defensive assignments and all that type of stuff. So uh, there hasn't been a good answer. Now, the interesting thing that happened in the second half of that Seton Hall loss is Cesar Edwards, the freshman, came in, played 10 minutes, scored eight points, was four or five from the field, responded well after uh, missing some free throws and shooting an air ball. Like, I mean, just... He looked good. He looked the part. Now, again, Seton Hall has a bigger team, has a lineup that's easier to match up with while playing too big. So we'll see how well that works against other matchups. But maybe that was the spark that this team needed to say, okay, we can now sit Zach Fremantle out for 
half the game or more because you can play small sometimes with Colby at the four. You can play big with Cesar Edwards in the lineup along with Jack Nungy. And now you don't have to rely as much on Zach Freeman on there's at least someone to push him for some of those minutes. So maybe that'll that'll spark a change, but I'm not too optimistic that that's going to make the difference. Yeah, I, I, I got to make a change, though. Whatever it is, I got to make a change. Yeah, I think I think that's where we're at right now. So, all right, finally, Cincinnati lost at home to Houston by 22 on Sunday and then won at South Florida by 11 on Wednesday. What did you make of Cincinnati's one-on-one stretch since we last spoke? I mean, not, nothing shocks you, right? I mean, Houston's just that much better. Um, I think we all knew that. It's kind of disappointing to lose that way at home, but Houston is just that much better. Um, and then I think they've shown that, and they're going to about to play their way into this potentially, Rick. We thought they were somewhere, you know, third or fourth best team in the AAC coming in. Well, right now they sit in in, in fourth and, and a half game out of third, and they've got a stretch of games and it has them at Tulsa and then Memphis, Wichita, Temple at home, um, and and then at UCF and South Florida at home. I mean, you got a chance to 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 you know go at minimum four and two, maybe five and one, maybe even six and zero oh through that that stretch I just mentioned. If you did, you will be the third place team in the league. Kind of what we thought. The one other kind of interesting thing for me is against some of the lesser teams in AAC play, Cincinnati has shown that they can shoot the ball a little bit better. Now, it didn't work out against East Carolina. They were bad in that game. They're six for 27 from three, but they've had some better shooting performances in conference play when they're not playing a team like Houston. And you look at this one against South Florida, they go 10 for 21 from three shooting 47.6%. You got four of them from David Julius, three from Jeremiah Davenport. Uh, John Newman hit one, Mike Saunders hit one, and and Mason Madsen hit one. So um, three-point shooting obviously is a huge boost for this team whenever they can get any offense going. And against the lesser teams in the AAC, they've shot a little bit better than I think anyone expected them to shoot. So I think that's at least a positive sign for what this team is capable of down the stretch and potentially even in the AAC tournament, depending on what matchups dictate. Because after Houston, I don't think there's a whole lot of separation between all these teams. And and granted, SMU did just beat Houston on Wednesday night by two. Uh, That game was at SMU. But I think that, for the most part, is a fluke. And aside from that, it's really a pretty big jumble there when you're talking about SMU, Memphis, Cincinnati, and Temple and Tulane. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, that's where if you get yourself to that three seed line for the conference tournament, you don't have to play Houston until the final. And, and you know, maybe they don't even get there. Maybe they get knocked off somewhere along the way. But I think that's my goal if, I, if I'm Wes Miller of, of let's let's get to the three seed line. And if we do, we think we've got a, a really good chance to, to make a run to the conference tournament final. And then who knows when that takes place. So, yeah, I think they've proven that they, what they've proven what we thought they were. <laughs> they're they're not as good as Houston, and they're they're as good as anybody else. I mean, they have a win over SMU for goodness sakes. They're as good as them. Now they got to play them on the road still, but but they they are what we thought they were. Yeah, Kentucky or I mean Cincinnati still has the tough stretch. You mentioned they end the year by playing at Houston at and at SMU back to back. So that's going to be a tough stretch. But the good news for them is the team that's right ahead of them in the standings, Memphis. Their next game is at Houston, then they go at UC, then they go at SMU, then they play home at Temple, home against Wichita State, at South Florida, and then they finish the year off playing home against Houston. So they've still got Houston two more times, they've got at SMU, and they have at UC. If UC is able to win that game on Tuesday against Memphis, 
they've got a really good chance to get that third seed. Yep, agreed. All right, Skinny, let's wrap it up with some Ask Skinny Anything. And we will start with a, uh, a question that originated from a photo that I posted last night when I was leaving the legendary Panther Arena here in Milwaukee. Uh, I went into the bathroom to use the John real quick, and I walked in, and what did my eyes behold, Skinny? None other than some long johns, the best type of urinal known to mankind. Uh, so I took a picture of it, tweeted out there. I got some pushback on that. Some guy said that they actually prefer the trough, the old trough like you would see at Hinklefield. House. Oh, yeah. So uh, the, the, it demands the question, uh, long johns or troughs for you, Skinny? I'm going trough. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't, that's too much shared space when we're we were doing the business and there's too much splatter. The best part about long johns is there's no splatter. It's like you're peeing on the floor. Yeah, no, I I I I kind of like the trough. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know why. I mean, just it just uh, Yeah, I'm going to need I'm going to need the why here because I just gave you. It's like long johns, a little more privacy, but still you get to pee on the floor and there's no splatter. What's the benefit to the trough? You know, a little I, bit closer to the guy next to you? No, I just uh, if, maybe it's, just, it's an older school thing, I guess. I I just like the trough. Nah, I, no, I, I, I just do. I, I peeing on the floor is always weird to me. I like it. I, it's, it's like it's the best. The best thing as a man is to be able to pee outside. Correct. The fact that we can just pee wherever in the woods or the grass. Yeah, I'm not a big. I'm not. A, I do that on a. I only do that when I'm desperate. I know a lot of guys I play golf with. They almost take pride in having to take a leak in the in the yeah. in the bushes. I don't. I don't take great pride in that. Really. No, that's one of the great joys in my life. Being a man is uh, back even at my old house, you know, where I lived kind of off the subdivision there. I was kind of secluded. We would go and open the front door and just pee out in the front yard just because instead of using the bathroom, because it's it's great feeling. It's it's good to get a little breeze flowing. And I kind of feel like that's the, the indoor version of that is the long john. You just it's very free to just feel like you're kind of peeing on the floor. That that feels very, very uncouth to me. Just opening my door and peeing just outside for blanks and giggles. Yeah, there was actually a point where we killed a patch of grass. So it was like, oh, we're peeing in the same spot too much. Or, or maybe there's a little too much acid or something, like cool down on the beers or pops or whatever. And I will say I did have one where I came home one time, parked in the back of of of, of my house, and I had to go so bad that I couldn't make it inside. And I was really embarrassed to, to have to, to, to go in my yard and try to not have neighbors look while I did it. I, I got myself secluded and hidden enough, but I felt really bad for that. But sometimes nature calls to the point where you just can't, you can't wait. Yeah. I, I do have to make it clear on at, at my old house before I moved in with my fiance, I, I had no neighbors. Like I was back there by myself off the end of a subdivision right. on kind of private property. So a little bit different. It's have one you, of the things ever had I truly miss now about living in Newport. I love Newport, but we have too many neighbors that I can't pee outside. Have you ever had to go in the car like really bad and actually had something that you did go in? I've never done the bottle. Th- uh, well, I take that back. I've done the bottle thing one time when I was in high school and it's just, it too. you know, it's not good. It's maybe not I'm good. not equipped properly if I'm being honest, but it's just too, too hard. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Uh, Obviously, we all should have shut the hell up and listened to Skinny about Lou Anarumo. What are some other things he wishes we would all do likewise? <laughs> I, I don't. I'm not, trust me, as you know, I'm not right on everything. I just give my opinion, and I, I usually will stick to my guns on guys. Um, I will tell you this, and this is a this has always been a big pet peeve of mine, and I got in arguments with my former radio co-host about this. 
the whole chemistry in baseball has always bothered me. Oh, that team, they have great team chem. You don't need chemistry in baseball. You don't. You don't need I don't a need you to like baseball. me. Or, well, a lot of times you don't. I don't need you to like me for me to have to go up and hit the pitcher. It's me against the pitcher. It's not me. Boy, my teammate really likes me. This is going to help. No. Hey, listen, in basketball and football, two team sports that you know that that you need guys next to you to play well. I think chemistry does matter there. Doesn't mean you have to like them, but you have to have chemistry with them. Chemistry in baseball is the biggest bunch of hooey I've ever come down the pike to listen to me. Stop telling me, oh, that team's playing really well because they get along in the club. Oakland A's used to kick each other's ass in the clubhouse and they won two they won a bunch of World Series back in the seventies. They didn't care. <laughs> chemistry. I yeah, I could not agree more with that take. So that's that's an easy yes for me. Um I'm not sure if you're aware of this happening. I, I didn't see it because I wasn't in New Jersey last night, but apparently during a timeout, Seton Hall had some type of remembrance and was honoring cancer survivors or those lost to cancer, something to do with cancer. And um, Xavier wasn't made aware of it. Travis Steele was mad at his team in a huddle. And during the moment of silence, Travis Steele was apparently just screaming an F-bomb that the entire arena heard. So uh, we've got a question from our guy, Danny says, given Travis Steele's poorly timed F-bomb last night, what is Skinny's most regrettable or accidental use of profanity? And what were the consequences? Oh, it's an easy one. I Last year, coaching a freshman game at Connor, um, we were winning pretty handily, but still, I'm still trying to coach. And I called an, an underneath out of bounds set that we've run all year. I don't have a lot of sets. I have probably four to six out of bounds sets, Rick. And, by mid-January, don't you think you should know him by heart pretty easily that we've repped him in practice a bunch and we've repped him in games? Well, sure enough, the kid inbounding it absolutely blew the play. As soon as it came inbounds, because he had to force it inbounds, he didn't run it right, I took a timeout and I had my mask on and I ripped the mask off and I just let a tirade of F-bombs go to the point where Connor parents are yelling at me, your mouth, your mouth, watch your mouth. And I went, oh, yeah, good point. Because I kept thinking, ooh, I was, I was so mad. I, I, I'm not sure I've been that mad in my life as a coach. Uh, it, this isn't the same. It's not a good look. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not here to condone what I did by any stretch. Shame on me. But I just, I'm almost Tourette's-like in that regard. When something bothers me that much, it's just going to spew out of me. <laughs> this isn't really the same thing because it's not like um, necessarily as poorly timed, I guess. It wasn't like a moment of silence or anything, but w w where would you rank you walking out of the Cincinnati Enquirer? Oh, uh, that's up there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't somebody. think that was accidental use is what I'm trying to say, but yeah, no, that, that was, yeah. I, I called somebody a, a bad, bad name on, on my, on my exit interview, but it was well heard. It was well heard. Well yeah. received. Well done. I will say this in defense of Travis though. I'm not sure that that's a good place for a moment of silence during a basketball game in the middle of it. Yeah, it feels like something you got to do before the game or at halftime yes. maybe. Or or you've really got to be clear about letting them know, hey, during this next media timeout, here's what we're going to do. No, um, I don't even – I don't even – I think that's I think that's poorly done on Seton, Seton Hall's part. I, I do. I would I, tend I'm, to agree. I'm, I don't have I'm a – sure the, the, intent, the intent is right, but, yeah, do it at halftime or do it, honestly, before the game. Yeah. And, and I mean, people getting mad at Steele for this is like silly. I mean, like, obviously he had no clue what was going on. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Losing his, I mean, you know how maniacal coaches are to begin with, and they're getting their brains beat in for the 
million straight first half in a row. So, I mean, he's just losing his mind on his team. He has no idea what's going on around him at that point. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I could care less about that actually happening, although it sounded pretty funny. I wish I was there to hear it in person. Not not that I have anything against cancer. In fact, I would argue that he's probably saying F cancer. Um, (laughs) Maybe that should have been his comeback. Yeah, I was I wasn't yelling at my team. I was yelling at cancer. That's right. Um, All right. Finally, our uh, question from our guy, Coop. Skinny, do you think the Fed will need to push for austerity measures to crush the demand side of the yield curve and as a 100 basis point rate hike an effective tool for transitory price increases? Only if you take the coefficient of the doge at 9.33 a.m. every morning can you do that, in my opinion. And then it's all ball bearings these days. We know that. You've turned into a doge guy? Yeah, not, but it's got to be specific time and you got to use the coefficient of the tangent of it at that specific point in time. And again, then it's all ball bearings at that point. Okay. Well, I mean, I wish I had more to add to that, but uh, as you know, I don't. I appreciate that question. It's a great question. No, it was a really good question. Definitely uh, good for this podcast, too. It's right in our wheelhouse. Exactly. Well, Rick, we will uh, be back on Sunday. uh, Actually, technically, probably by the time we do the podcast, very early in the wee hours of Monday morning with our post-Super Bowl podcast. So be sure to join us for that. um, And we'll see if the Bengals can, can... finish this thing off it's been a crazy wild ride as we're still talking nfl football in cincinnati in the middle of february who would have thought that for goodness sakes so hopefully uh we will have a super bowl victory to talk about on sunday for rick roaring i'm richard skinner it's been the skinny podcast the weekly poker edition presented by ryan keith with prime Lending.